Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ozil, marca Mesut Ozil Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra as always with James from Gunner Blog Sorry, let me just uh, do that again BAFTA award-winning James from Gunnar Blog. How are you this morning? I am very hungover. (laughs) (laughs) Very delicate. But thank you very much. Yes, I had a lovely uh, evening. Uh, I mean, I must say, it was for the show that I am in, so it was very much a collective award for Horrible Histories. Um, Mm. But, crucially, the clip that they showed during And the Nominees Are was of me. So I'm taking all the credit, really, I think. I think you should. You, you got to take That's your, how it works. Yeah, you got to take your trophies where you get them. You know, it's a well, it's a competitive Arsenal fans. Yeah. We well know that. And it's a competitive cutthroat world in the, you know, acting, TV, movies, all that kind of stuff. I can mm. tell you from vast experience that I've had working yeah. on the catering truck for the Snapper starring Colin Meaney and Brendan okay. Gleeson and also let it be known that I was the voice of a man with an axe in his head and a French chef in an Icelandic animated version of Thor. So I know wow. where I know how how hard it is out there yeah, in, sure. in the world. You know, well, you can teach me a thing or two. Uh, I think <laughs> the important thing is to celebrate these awards that you know divide something that's fundamentally subjective and decide that one creative endeavor is better than another. I think you know. That's a, a lovely thing for everyone involved. But no, it was a nice evening <laughs> and with an enormous amount of free alcohol. Um, and uh, the, the problem was we got there and the first thing that happened, they have the awards and then they have like a dinner and drinks mm. thing. The first award we won. So from that point on... It's just mayhem. Was just, it was mayhem. Yeah, I was yeah. just celebrating really probably... I was probably talking during other people's speeches. It was probably disrespectful, to You're be honest with you. Heckling by the end. Just heckling by the end, like the, the Lifetime Achievement Award that they do last. Fuck <laughs> you, like, Dame Judy Dench! Yeah, get on with it! Um, but yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was good fun, and uh, yeah, really nice, really nice. I mean, they're very heavy, that's what I'll say. BAFTAs. Oh, ever so heavy. All right. I was, could barely lift it. <laughs> well, uh, so, you know, it's a good doorstop, I guess. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, very good. I mean, and, uh, you know, after the few weeks we've had, I mean, you know, as we all know, my laptop broke a week ago. So it just shows you guys life can turn around very quickly. Well, look, unfortunately, it seems that the, the recipients of your misfortune bump were, you know, um, horrible histories. Sure. Rather sure. than Arsenal's did not return, did they, mm. to Arsenal? So, not, yeah. Well, we didn't lose. We didn't lose. 
Freddie Jumberg remains unbeaten as Arsenal manager. <laughs> it's fair yeah. to say. All right, well, look, let's get into Arsenal's 2-2 draw with Norwich at Carrow Road yesterday. Um, you know, I think we have to... Um, it, it's kind of strange, isn't it, to try and analyse... Um, a game, a performance in the context that it came because he only had a couple of training sessions with um, with the players. Mm-hmm. It's a weird situation where he is the interim head coach and he has basically said, you know, for however long I'm doing it, I'll do my best. But it seems clear that there's a, a search underway for a, uh, you know, for a more permanent appointment, et cetera, et cetera. Nevertheless, it was a game of football. Um, we were um, excited and buzzing again because obviously things under Unai Emery had been poor and this was going to be something new and something different. It wasn't that new or different or didn't really feel like it, but I thought there were some promising things in the first half in particular that we'll come to. But I'm curious, um, because we were trading some texts yesterday about this, um, so we might as well get into it on the on the pod, about the, the starting lineup and some mm-hmm. of the decisions that he made with the players that he chose. Um, it's fair to say a couple of things here. One, if Unai Emery had picked that team, Ooh, man. <laughs> there would have been all-out war. All yeah. out war. I mean, the planet Earth, as we know it, would be gone simply because <laughs> of the, the levels of warfare that have gone on. Um, I can't remember what the other point I was going to make about it was. Well, it's hard to see past that because that's the apocalypse, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's the end of all things if he'd picked that team. Yeah, true. I, I think maybe the other thing that I was going to say is that it, it would it would have been easier and more popular for him to pick a different team than the one that he did. Like, he could easily have picked a team that ticked all the boxes for fans and people would have been more um, receptive to a poor result than perhaps they were in the wake of of what actually happened. So um, Mm. does it sort of demonstrate a little bit of single-mindedness to you that he was willing to pick players that, you know, he's not unaware are flawed and also not necessarily the most popular at this moment in time with Arsenal fans. Yes, I mean he didn't he didn't go for the easy wins, did he? No. Um and I don't believe I've seen this sort of conspiracy theory mounted online that you know this was the team Unai Emery was going to pick and Freddie didn't feel the uh, time to uh, change it. Not I think I think we've got to give Freddie more credit than that to be honest. I think he is quite a single-minded bloke. And, you know, uh, when he spoke afterwards, you know, when he was asked about Nicola Pepe, among other things, he made it pretty clear this was his decision and his team. Uh, Nonetheless, I was surprised. You know, there were people... I I, I fancied Shaka to come back in. I just thought... Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's, it's you know, a bit of a clean slate to an extent. And I just thought, you know, Freddie wants to play a passing game and he gives you that technical security, Shaka, if if he does lack in other areas. And perhaps that is what was behind the Mustafi thing as well, you know, if he wanted to play out from the back. But I almost felt that was as much a comment on some of our other central defenders as anything else. I mean, Mm. we touched on it last week, but Socrates this season has been a disaster, I think. Yeah, I agree. I was actually... um wandering around my house the other day, just randomly thinking about Arsenal. And I was, um, you know, it crossed my mind that Socrates has been so bad. I was thinking to myself, well, would 
would it be any worse to play Mustafi? Mm. Like he's been that bad that I was considering kind of what Freddie, what Freddie did. Mm. And then I went, mm, yeah, you know, there was, yeah, mm, not sure about that. And then, of course, we saw what happened yesterday. I mean, I have to say, I went into it a bit on the blog this morning. I think the reason that he picked Mustafi was because he is uh, better on the ball than Socrates. He's um, got his issues defensively, as we all know. But I think the way he wanted the team to play... He wanted the, the the team to control possession more than we've seen under Unai Emery. He wanted the team to play higher up the pitch. And I think, you know, on the ball, Mustafi is far better than Socrates. And, you know, there's no easy fix, is there, for this defence? It's not like you're going to come in and go, right, click your fingers, and you're going to turn this group of of so-called defenders into an actual defense. So it strikes me that the best way to mitigate your defensive weakness is to be a team that is more in control of the game and you're playing the game more in the opposition half, away from your own final third, rather than what Emery did, which was to to invite pressure and to invite the opposition to have lots of shots. You know, I could see that's, that's why I think he did it. Um when it comes to the selection of Mustafi. Yeah, I think that that, you know, that that makes a, a good deal of sense. I also think there's just another thing, which is probably a relatively small factor in his thoughts, but that psychological component of, um, you know, bringing someone back into the group. You see it a lot with new managers, I'm trying to think, but like when Claude Puel left Leicester, for example, Jamie Vardy was kind of out in the cold, straight back into the team. You know, there's that thing of sort of putting an arm around the shoulder and trying to make everyone happy in a group, which I think Freddie was probably had in mind. And, and, and what you say tactically, to an extent, it did work. I mean, we had more possession in this game than we have become accustomed to having under Unai Emery, I think it's fair to say. Mm. Um, and our territory was a little bit better, we were just still very vulnerable to counter-attacks, weren't we? And uh, I mean, mm. absolutely undone by those in, in the first half. Yeah, we were. I think the way we played in the opening 15, 20 minutes was really promising. You know, you you could see a team that was, you know, maybe giving a bit more, but also instructed to play differently. And I think they were... They were told to move the ball more quickly. There was a moment quite early on in the in the first half where we had the ball and you could see Callum Chambers on the far side gesturing like, come on, let's switch the play. Let's move the ball more quickly. Definitely playing higher up the pitch. Louise, you know, was being pushed higher up and being asked to play higher up. You could see that Kalasinac was being asked to, to, to bomb on and Genduzzi would, you know, play as basically an auxiliary left back switching across from midfield to cover that space when Kalasinac went forward. So... You know, I could see what what he was trying to do, and there were some um, some positive moments. I think Lacazette should have scored in mm. in the opening five six minutes. There was a Mustafi header cleared off the line. There was a Chambers uh, header cl- or saved, I think, by, oh, by yeah. Tim Cruel. Right. You know, yeah. so it was a, it really was a positive start to the game, and uh, I don't know. Go on. Sorry, just I had something that occurred to me that um, was a very welcome change uh, and that I didn't realise during play is that our corners were markedly better. Uh, Meza Ozil took a lot of them. Yes. And if you think about it, there was that Mustafi chance in the first half, the Chambers header at the near post that was saved. We mm. scored off a corner in the second half. So, th- you know, that is a little bit of progress in, in that area for sure. Mm. But of course, 
Arsenal being Arsenal against the run of play, we we conceded a goal. And when you yeah. look at where we lost the ball and you look at how quickly it came uh, to the edge of our box, this goes to what Freddie was talking about afterwards where he said, uh, what was this quote? It was, the problem is um, we have problems in transitions while we had possession. That's something that's easy for a coach because we know what we need to work on. And when you look at the goal, look, David Luiz is awful for the goal. Mm. I don't think Mustafi is particularly great, but where we lose it, it takes Norwich two passes and about four or five, four seconds to get from deep in their own half to feed their striker on the edge of our box. And I think Xhaka was running back, um, couldn't catch up. Genduzi backed off rather than, you know, going to the man to try and cut out the ball. So I think that's you know, our, I, you know, I don't have anything really good to say about our central defenders, and I'm sure we'll talk about them more in in a bit. But, you know, you could have the famous back four in there, and if they are being exposed the way that our central defenders right now are being exposed, they would also struggle with that. So I think there is something to be said for how how the midfield just is not providing any protection towards uh, or for the for the defence. Yeah, I think so, and I'm I'm not sort of trying to dig him out too much because he's a guy playing that position but I think we suffered a bit for having Callum Chambers on the right hand side I think he 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 wanted to go forward and I think there was a lot that was positive about that but he's not really got the athleticism to get back once he yeah. does that and in on this goal actually so he, I think the ball, he gave the ball to Joe Willock or the ball went to Joe Willock right on the right-hand touchline. Yeah. And it was a rare instance on TV where you can hear Callum Chambers' call. He says like, Joe, inside and he sprints yeah. into the box. He really makes a, an ambitious run, I would say. And Willock, I don't think it's an easy find for Willock. Mm. Uh, and he loses the ball, unfortunately. And then from that point on... You know, we're, we're a man down, essentially. Chambers is well ahead of play, not getting back. And on that side, the players we've got coming back, we've got Shaka on the right-hand side of the central midfield, Mustafi, the right-sided centre-half. Neither of those players, you'd say, are particularly strong when they're going back towards their own goal. No. Um, and, you know, uh, does it deflect in the end of the shot? I've forgotten now. There's yeah, it deflects off Mustafi. Yeah, Louise sort of, you know, does his... Whatever. He does his thing, which... I, I, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised by this. None of us should, but he's such a weird footballer, David Luiz. It's he is he's a he's a uh, what's the word I'm going to use here? He's a good footballer, like with the ball at his feet. He yeah. is good at doing football things. As a defender, though, yeah. It's, he, uh, I mean, you're right. He, it's weird because watching us on the ball yesterday, I was looking at Luiz and thinking. Technically, he's one of the most assured players we have or have had in recent years. I mean, he really can pass the ball really, really well. Uh, But it's almost like he plays at centre-half sort of just Like, he doesn't really defend. He sort of runs into areas, but that's kind of it. Mm. Um, he's, he's He's a body back there when we're defending. And I think... Because of that, really, if you want to get the best of him, I think you have to sort of use him in a back three. I mean, I know it's not what a lot of people want to see, but if you want to play Louise, that's what I'm... Because he becomes the spare man who who brings the ball out. In a two, I just don't feel... I feel like he defends areas, but he never defends the man or the ball particularly well. Yeah. Look, I think it's fair to say at this point that he has been a, a 
bad signing. Um, yeah, you I know, guess, I mean, he's he, seems, just he seems a nice man. No, he seems like a yeah. nice man and you know a, a good character, and he's helping Martinelli and all that kind of stuff. But but for a club that lost an a, an actual defender in Lauren Koscielny, a committed, um, aggressive balls out defender even if he was coming towards the end of his career and there were you know there were obviously issues with his with his fitness last season because he was overplayed and and we didn't get the best out of him but you know just as a natural defender to replace him with somebody like Louise you know who you'd have in your five-a-side team any day of the week but Mm -hmm. to be marshalling a defense you know to be 33 years of age and to have the experience that he has and bring none of that to the team is is really disappointing. And look, when he arrived, I was like, oh, I don't know about this. But sort of in the spirit of, of optimism and goodwill at the start of the season, you're willing to give it a chance. Mm. Um, and now I don't know. I don't know what we do because, look, you know, without um, dwelling on it too much, Let's look at the second goal again. The ball breaks down. I don't know. Um, I think it was Chambers got back, didn't he? And, um, you know, Mustafi just kind of stood there and let the guy curl it uh, curl it around him. Uh, yeah. You know, Mustafi, I, 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 the logic that I can see for Freddie picking him yesterday was for what we would do when we were in possession. And he was hopeful, I think, that, you know, being more in control of the game might offset some of our defensive weaknesses. That wasn't the case. And I think Mustafi showed yesterday, not just on the two goals, but the way he was turned time and time again. Um, you know, some of his um, defending, if you want to call it that, was was just... Look, we've seen it way, way too often with him. There's a reason why we were putting him up for sale this summer. There's a reason why we wanted to get rid of him. There's a reason why Unai Emery told him, basically, um, privately and publicly, that he needed to find a new club. And, it, you know, all the evidence was there yesterday. Look, he's done all right in the Europa League, but, you know, Premier League, it's far more intense, quicker, players are stronger and better, even a team like Norwich. Um, and, yeah, it's it's a real problem because, they, you know, they don't get protection, but individually and collectively, they're not good enough either. Yes, I think that's true. And, again, I know he's out of position, but Chambers was, again, for me, caught very high. He was, you know, well behind. Was it Hernandez, I think, gave yeah. quite a lot of trouble down that flank. It was a little bit reminiscent of the uh, yeah. Swansea fella. I forget. Montero, Jefferson, Jefferson Montero. Montero. Yeah, yeah I, I did think some shades of that. Um, and, you know, we know Chambers wants to play in the centre. And, to be honest, I think... He's worth a shot, given what we're saying about Mustafi and Louise. I think you know he is pretty competent on the ball. He is someone who could step in there. I mean, the way Arsenal play, you know, bombing forward and not providing masses of protection for that back four. There's good teams that sometimes do that, and Arsenal teams of the past have sometimes done it. What they've had though have been people like Koscielny or going further back than that, people like Campbell, people like Torre, people who were really athletic, fantastic one-to-one defenders. And it was almost like we could take that risk because at the back, we had these guys who could go man-to-man with anybody and probably win those duels. And unfortunately, we just don't have centre-backs of that cal. You know, Koscielny would be our best defender right now by miles, which I think speaks volumes given, you know, the physical condition he's in and the age of it on him. I have a certain amount of sympathy, actually, with people like Socrates or Mustafi or Louise because, you know, I do think the midfield don't do a good job of 
protecting them. But if if we are, you know, going to deal with that and play like that, and given you know the fact that the transfer window is closed, there's only so much we can do. Uh, God, I, I worry. I worry because mm. we saw those weaknesses exposed by Norwich, and Norwich. You know, I know they've got some decent players, but they're not a great side. Uh, yeah, and we were vulnerable. I think it is going to be the biggest challenge for any new coach, whether it's Freddie or whoever it is that comes in, is to to get something together defensively out of this group of players. Mm. You know, with the personnel that we have um, between now and January or now and the end of the season, depending on um, if there's any there's any um, augmentation of the squad in the January transfer window. Um, yeah, it, it's going to be a, a really big problem, but I think it's got to start with better collective organisation. And, and I think you make a really good point about Toure, Campbell, those kind of guys who are both strong. They were quick. You know, we don't have a great deal of physical strength. We don't have a great deal of pace. Um, and just, you know, in terms of quality of defending, you, we don't have defenders who are who are there to um, make the tackles, read the game, put their bodies on the line. Bit of a cliche, I know, but like that was something Koscielny would do. He'd stick his head in where it hurt. How many times did he get fucking smashed in the head, Koscielny, trying Mm. to defend for Arsenal? When's the last time you saw an Arsenal defender um, really look that committed in defence? So, you know, I guess we've got some... um, some hope for Rob Holding when he comes back to be 100% fit. But, you know, let's not forget, he's just coming back off a a big, serious injury. And um, I think we've seen with uh, not just him, but other players in the past that it can take not just a couple of weeks, but a couple of months at least to get back to anything like your top level, both physically, mentally, the way you, um, the way you, uh, your match sharpness, match fitness, all that kind of stuff. It takes a while to come back and players can look much, um, much less than they were until such time as that happens. So we do have a, a big, big problem back there. Um, and both the goals, you know, conceded in, in the first half. Um, let's talk the Arsenal goals, I guess. Um, Aubameyang, uh, got a second bite of the cherry, which I'm sure he'll be very grateful for because the uh, the first penalty was really poor. Yes, and I have to say, I mean, I never fancied him against Tim Krul, who has an excellent record on penalties. I think he's saved, is it three this season or already? Mm. Uh, I mean, I have to say, everything that happened with the retake and Tim Krul being upset. I mean, it couldn't happen to a bigger wanker than Tim Krul. So that was nice. I know. That's one of the big regrets that I have, uh, you know, that we didn't win the game is that, you know, you can't you can't really um, yeah. go to town on, on Tim Krul. I did watch him um, on Sky afterwards. I had the, the just left it on and he was talking and, you know, he came across across quite reasonably in that, you know, that's his job is to try and put the striker off and everything yeah. else. You know, his antics are really annoying, but, you know... Um, You'd love it if it was your keeper. That's I it. Guess. You know, there's a touch of the Jens Lehmann off it, you know? Yeah, and, you know, he is a great... Uh, was it Tim Cool who got brought on for a penalty shootout for Holland uh, in, some, in the Euros of the World Cup? I remember. I do remember it, it was. For Sillinson, I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, he's he's great on penalties. And we look, we got a reprieve. I I uh, I don't I have to say I don't fully understand the encroachment thing because 
I mean, from what I could see, kind of, I think Lacazette was encroaching as much as anyone else, but I'm mm. happy to take it, that's for sure. Well, I think it was the fact that the guy who cleared the ball away was actually just inside the box. There were players on the other side right. who were far more inside yeah. uh, than, than he was, but the fact that he got to the ball and cleared it, um, I think, uh, brought it back. And Aubameyang um, made no mistake with, with the second penalty. Um, Did you see um, Lacazette after the penalty miss, by the way? Having a no. go at Bemiang. Oh, he really, he really let him have it. Did uh, he? I have to, I, my normal, um, the site that I use to download the games um, is right. down at the moment. So I haven't been able to sort of download it again and just watch the bits and pieces that, that I would normally watch. So I'll have to, uh, right. I'll have to I, check that out. I think it again. was for not following in for the rebound. But like he, I mean... Mm. Yeah, it, he, I mean, we know he's got a bit of a temper on him, Lacazette, but it was uh, mm. it was very apparent. But look, we got the reprieve, and I guess, you know, I mean, I, I'm not convinced by Aubameyang as a penalty taker, I have to say, but well done to him, fair play for sticking it away, because, you know, he must have had a few doubts lining up for that second one. Yeah, for sure. I was wondering if somebody else might take it, but, you know, to put Are it in... Are they the- allowed if it's a retake? I'm I don't sure. know. Why not? I don't- yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, Interesting, right? Yeah. Well, look, you know, he put it in the same place or put it where he was trying to put the first one, I guess. You know, just mm. be a bit more emphatic with it. It was, you know, right height and everything for, for, for a goalkeeper. So, and you're right, yeah, it was Tim Krul who came off the bench for Holland in a penalty shootout against um, Costa Rica. He came off the bench in the last minute of extra time and saved two penalties as Holland won 4-3 on penalties in the, in the wow. World Cup. So there you go. Did Joel Campbell take one of those penalties for Costa Rica? Uh, I don't know. Hundred. I can't imagine Joel Campbell lasting 120 minutes, but possibly. <laughs> um, okay. So look, we get a goal early in the second half. Early enough in the second half. Aubameyang again. Um, it was a corner, a good delivery. I think Mustafi had a shot blocked, and Aubameyang yeah. was there. Smashed it home. 57, 58 minutes. And you got half an hour to play, and you're thinking, okay. You know, we're back in it. Let's see if we can refine some of the control and the initiative that we had in the first half. But I do think there are some very deep scars running through this team that are really influencing the way that we perform. Um, and we never quite, mm. or never quite, never com- never got back into it really again, did we? Uh I don't think there was any sustained pressure from us. And, you know, frankly, if it weren't for Bernd Leno, that's a game that we would not have taken anything from. He was absolutely superb. Again, the most overworked goalkeeper in world football. Yeah. I mean, this was the uh, battle of the two teams who concede a lot of shots. I mean, uh, I think Norwich going into the match were one of two Premier League sides who'd conceded more shots on their goal than Arsenal. So it was always likely to be a shootout. And thankfully, we had Leno to spare our blushes. I mean, the save he made just after it went to 2-2 when the guy went clean through on goal and he yeah. he got his, was it his left hand to it. I mean, that was a fantastic save. Yeah, and the other yeah, the other one that he that, that deflected and he was sort of going oh, the other yeah. way and then he came back and pushed it around. I mean, look, in a season when few of our players have reached anything like their potential. I think we have to give massive credit to, to Bernd Leno for the consistency of his performances. You know, I'm sure he would rather be far less busy than he is, you know? Of course. Um, and obviously the fact that he is 
um, making saves uh, is a consequence of the fact that, you know, he is on the receiving end of a lot of you know, footballing bullets, if you like. You know, he uh, he maybe wouldn't look as good if the team was more solidly uh, set up defensively, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But, you know, until such time as it is, we have to be thankful that we've got a goalkeeper as good as him and in as good as uh, a form as he is. Yeah, and the other thing to say is, you know, we look at our central defenders and they go, well, you know, they're going to make mistakes because they're under such pressure. But Bern Leno is not dropping the odd clanger. Do you know what I mean? It's not like he's doing it, putting a foot wrong despite the interminable pressure he's under. Mm. He's making good saves, but he's also just very consistent. And I had a look at the stats. His his numbers in terms of sort of coming off his line and uh, claiming stuff in the air are, are markedly better than they were last season. Mm. Um, so he's improving in every respect. He's adapting brilliantly to the Premier League. And I think... For me, he's got to be in the top five goalkeepers easily in this division. He's, yeah, in mm. fantastic form. And I think, you know, yesterday we were grateful to Aubameyang and Leno at both ends of the pitch. And how many times has that been the, the case? This yeah, it's just what's in between those two that appears to be. If we could only get the, the stuff in between, right? Just, just nine more players to make it what all better. You, um, what did you make of Freddie's subs then? I have to say I thought they were curious. Mm. I thought they were a bit strange. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Lacazette in the second part because I've got some questions about that. But um, Torreira for Willock, okay. I can see why that happened on 70 minutes or thereabouts. But if it were me, I would have taken Lacazette off before then or maybe even at the same time, which I know sounds counterintuitive because you need a goal and you're taking off an experienced uh, striker. I just don't think what we get from Lacazette in away games is worth sacrificing Aubameyang out wide for, even though he he scored twice yesterday. And I think that's, you know, down... Obviously, one was a penalty um, and the other one was from, from a set piece. Set balls, yeah. D- kind of dead ball situations. But I just don't know that it's worth the sacrifice. Um, if it were me, I would have taken off Lacazette around the same time as I'd taken off uh, Willock and put Torreira on. And I'd have put, even put Saka on. I'd have put Martinelli on, to be honest. Um, it, it felt like the kind of game where if we had somebody who could run at their defenders, it might just do enough to change the momentum because the momentum was, was you know, completely the other way. They really had little to worry about, you know? So mm. I, I thought they were a bit strange. Saka for Ginduzi, uh you're getting an attacking player on. Um, I'm not sure it made that much difference to be honest, and then Martinelli in, what, in injury time? That was ninth minute. Yeah, I mean, that's that's too late. Um, what did you what did you think of them? Uh, well, look, I thought bringing Joe Willock off, you know, he was, he's a young player and it was unlikely he was ever going to get through 90 minutes. I think he had a very mixed afternoon, to be honest. Um, made sense. I was slightly surprised it was sort of just Torreira on for him because I thought that was... Uh, a slightly conservative change. You know, it's the sort of thing Unai Emery would get canned for, I think, bringing Torreira on with 20 minutes to go of a game we might have wanted to push on and win. Um, 
I think the big talking point is obviously that Pepe didn't get off the bench. Yeah. Uh, and Saka and Martinelli did in the same areas of the field that you would expect Pepe to play. And I, uh, I, I can't lie, I find that concerning. And unlike some, I don't... That doesn't make me think Freddie doesn't know what he's doing. It makes me think, what has Freddie seen that also Unai Emery saw mm. that means we're in this position? Yeah, I mean, I was going to leave the Pepe thing to the second half because we have some questions, so I might as well just get into sure. it here as we brought it up. Uh, Tiki Techers, at Tiki Techers on Twitter, says, should we not be concerned over what's happening with Pepe? One, not starting in games. Two, Saka and Martinelli uh, ahead of him. And we have Paul Gross, who's at Paul D. Gross, saying, did the omission of Pepe yesterday by Freddie, even neglecting to bring him off the bench, point to a genuine problem with him rather than, as we'd assumed, this just being one of Emery's terrible errors? of judgment um, mm-hmm. you know I, I saw Freddie getting a lot of stick for this yesterday his justification for it was uh, if I I'm going to read this out just to make sure I get the quote uh, exactly right um, basically though he was saying I make my decisions based on you know what I see in training and that's mm-hmm. it so you know, Freddie's talked about being an attacking, want, wanting to do uh, uh, bring an attacking focus back to the team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just to, uh, yeah, Pepe's a very good player. Like I said, I tried to look at what players have done in training, and that's how I judge them. So I think it was very easy for us to say Pepe's omission under Emery was because Emery doesn't like him. Emery doesn't want to play that way. Emery is overly cautious. Emery, you know, doesn't like wingers, etc., etc. There may be a, a, a significant element of truth to that as well. But I think when a new coach comes in, and as we said earlier, there were some easy wins for him in terms of his team mm-hmm. selection and, and even his substitutions, the fact that he didn't use Pepe, I think, suggests that there's some stuff going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of as fans. So on face value, you can say it's ludicrous not to play Pepe. And when you drop points and when you don't, uh, you know, you don't have any real attacking threat in the last 20 minutes of a game, I think it's perfectly reasonable to to bring that up. But I think you also have to step back and ask, well, why? Mm. Why did he choose Saka? Why did he choose Martinelli over a £72 million club record signing? And that that would that would concern me. Yeah, and I think I think there's a tendency on the part of all fans to be protective of a big signing because we all really want it to work out. But so far, it hasn't it hasn't really worked so far. Mm. I mean, I think that you just have to say that that's just the case and. When we bought Pepe, the reason we bought Pepe and not Zaha is because he we felt it was a better long-term option. So it's not a disaster that it hasn't worked on the 2nd of December. You know, he's got a four or five-year contract. But, yeah, it is a problem. It's it a, is a problem yeah, at the it's moment. It's a problem, yeah. And, um, you know, Freddie, I think we probably could have guessed, might have had a bit of uh, loyalty and, you know towards Willock, Saka, guys he knows inside out, coached for a whole season last season, who, who he knows will 
you know, apply themselves and adhere to his plan. He's got an affinity with those players and they are going to get opportunities. Um, but Martinelli, I mean, he didn't work with Martinelli last season. You know? No, I mean, I saw people suggesting that maybe, you know, he's he's overly influenced by Unai Emery or something like that, which I don't... I don't, I don't buy that at don't all. don't buy that myself either. But he has worked with these players all season long. Yeah. So... His opinion of Pepe isn't based on the last couple of weeks. It's been based on everything he's seen on the training ground since since Pepe arrived. Um, yeah. I, go on. Oh, sorry, can I just jump in? Now, I, I actually thought Torreira was, was quite good when he came on yesterday. But, yes. Uh, and made a couple of really good interventions. I do find it interesting, you know, all season long we've seen Emery not really pick Torreira or mm. not really pick Pepe. And because we discredit Emery on other things... We were like, well, he must be wrong. Um, but for Freddie to come in and in his first 11 not pick those players either, I think you have to look at the evidence and go, well, something they're seeing and they know they have so much more information than us. Something they're seeing is leading to those decisions. Yeah. I mean, look, we, all of us, you're right. You know, we want to see Pepe in the team. We want to see Pepe doing what he did for Lille. Mm. We want to see Pepe you know, flourish at this football club and there's obviously goodwill behind him. But I think we have to ask questions why on the 2nd of December, you know, he he's played 58 minutes of our last four Premier League games. Mm. He was left on the bench entirely for the, for the Eintracht Frankfurt game. I remember reading a piece that I think you wrote. Yeah. About how he is a, a player that isn't going to work or no not that's wrong to say he's a he's a player that um has thrived in a team which uh is a counter-attacking team right yeah would that be the the crux of it so yeah it was it was chatting to people who saw him play for Lille last season I'll repost it on Twitter but essentially what they said and I remember reading what they'd said or speaking to them on the phone and being a bit taken aback Effectively, they were like, this guy is not good for a possession team. He's brilliant in transition, brilliant mm. on the counter-attack. Yeah, that was the gist. So is um, is the is that perhaps a, a, a reason for... I mean, you can't even say that Unai Emery wanted us to be a possession team, but maybe that's what Freddie wants, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, do you think that's part of why his... Uh, adjustment to to Arsenal is taking so long because I'm not so sure it's an adjustment to English football per se. I think it might be an adjustment to what um, Arsenal want from him or what Arsenal expect from him. I mean, we're, we're obviously trying to... We're just speculating, obviously, but... I mean, take the dead balls out of it and the goals and assists he's got from those. I think, to, for my money, his best performances in Arsenal's shirt were at Anfield and against Sheffield United and in both those instances my memories of him are of playing on the break you know Anfield mm. chasing into that channel between Van Dyke and Robertson and at Sheffield United you know breaking out of almost sometimes almost the right back spot mm. uh, and breaking forward almost scoring that brilliant goal you remember where he's just scuffed it as it came across from the left from a move he'd started and I do think that's a stylistic thing that if Freddie does want to play a heavy, you know, possession style, there might be a bit of a an issue there. I, I know he's not injured. I've seen some speculation that he's carrying an injury. I mean, 
you know, I've had a word with a couple of people and that's not the case. He's fit. Um, I, the only thing I would say with the Freddie quote is because I think we're so used to analysing that kind of quote about Meza Ozil and trying to read between the lines. Mm. I, I didn't see the clip of Freddie saying it, but it could just be a very perfunctory thing. I don't think it's necessarily him having a dig at Pepe. I, I think he's just saying, I just went with the guys who I think are informed I thought were right. I actually have, um, the, I have the press conference here, so I can just play you it. Oh, yeah, want. great. So hang on. Um, here we go. He left Pepe. That's one, guys. Sorry? Record signing. A lot of excitement when he arrived. Nick yeah. Pepe yeah. chose two much younger players. What was the thinking behind that? And has Pepe got a lot of work to do to be ready? Uh... Pepe is a very good player, but I, like I said, I try to look at what's uh, been done in training and what I see every day, and uh, that's how I judge it. Thanks, guys. So, yeah, it was fairly perfunctory. I mean, he wasn't saying anything other than, mm. you know, exactly what he said, but, yeah. you know, maybe you have to read between the lines a bit and you have to um, think about what a manager doesn't say or a coach doesn't say sometimes. So it is. I mean, a, what do you. Go on. So, can I just ask, what do you think? Do you think Freddie has an obligation to use Pepe because the level of investment in him from the club's behalf financially is so high? I don't know that he has an obligation to use him, but I think what any coach uh, at a club like Arsenal has to do is is try and get the best out of a, a £72 million signing because we are not a football club that can just write off... Seventy-two million pounds on a player and and not play him. I mean, it does bring you back to the summer, and and it would raise questions maybe about what our transfer strategy really was. Did they sit down and did they like plan out where is Pepe going to play in this team? How are Arsenal mm. going to play this season? This is mm. this is the way we're going to play. This is where Pepe fits into that. You would imagine that that kind of a conversation had to happen before you spend seventy-two million pounds on a player, right? Surely, surely, or you know, who knows? <laughs> well, and, and if you were designing that team. You know, it would be a four-three-three, and you'd have Pepe on the right-hand side, and then two from three on the on the in the other positions. So you'd mm. have Aubameyang, maybe on the centre, maybe on the left, maybe Lacazette, maybe Saka, Martinelli. Even you know, the squad to a certain extent does adhere to that. I think the real reason I think Pepe is struggling so much for game time. Um, my best guess is that it actually is to do with the reintegration of Meza Ozil and that that is something I don't necessarily think the club saw coming. I, I, mm. I think they pretty much had made their minds up and uh, everything you know, Emery seems to say suggests that's the case, that, you know, it was going to be uh, it was going to be a 4-3-3 a three, 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 and that Ozil wasn't going to be in that. And now they've had to go back to him because they weren't getting the results. And I do just think, especially away from home, there is a bit of a, a mm. doubt over whether you can accommodate both. Do, do you think um, that it is possible to integrate Pepe? And to keep Ozil in the team. Can we play... <clears throat> sorry. That can, team that everyone wants us to play. Well, yeah, look, OK, let, let, let's not... Let's leave aside the um, the, the front three, you know, the, the Aubameyang-Lacazette-Pepe thing, because I'm mm. not sure that's the right way to go. 
to be perfectly honest. But if we're talking about getting Pepe into the team and Mesut Ozil is in the team and perhaps is going to stay in the team, you know, can you play a 4-2-1-3 with Ozil behind that front three? And you've got two um, deeper-lying central midfielders to cover that I, space? I mean, I think you can if you've got Vieira and Gilberto behind them. But I'm not sure if you can play Ozil and Pepe in that in a 4-2-3-1, say, um, and the lack of protection they offer, because neither are good defensively, mm. and it's not their game and not what they were brought to do. I'm not sure we can quite do that with Shaka, Genduzi, Louise and Mustafi shutting the back door. No. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 I do, yeah. I think I think that's it. I think it's a balanced thing. And I'm, unfortunately, I, I think at home we will do it and I think we can get away with it. But um, it's not an ideal situation. You know, if we had those Cowboys, those Tories, those, the, the, the lack of power, the chronic lack of sprinting and just pure sort of power in the centre of our team, to centre-back and central midfield is really catching up with us. It yeah. is really catching up with us. And I think it it probably means that decisions are being made to accommodate for that and to sort of appease that. I think even Emery going to the back three was a kind of desperate attempt to provide some insurance against those issues. And I think Pepe, to an extent, is probably paying for things within other areas of the team. Mm. Well, you know, that's another situation that needs to be uh, gotten on top of um, because you know it's it's not it's not really sustainable to to sort of uh, have that level of expenditure and then just not use the guy that's that's not you know I, we can't we're not the kind of club that can can sit on that kind of financial loss um i mean anything else from this one i mean kalasnac over tierney odd Surprising, but Tierney did play on Thursday, um, so maybe there's Kyle something. Asnach in that. was fine, actually. I yeah. have to say, he's usually not my favourite player, but mm. fine. Um, I, 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 yeah, I was surprised by that. Tierney, I forget when we last saw him Thursday. Tierney to me doesn't look quite sharp. Yeah, I know he's been brilliant going forward at times, but defensively, just to, I've seen him go shoulder to shoulder with people and come off second best a few times. And I just wonder if, you know, this injury, I know he he wasn't out that long, but it is quite a big injury and he had to have surgery on it. Yeah. I do wonder if, you know, the benefit of doubt we afford to Holding and Bellerin and some of the patience we show with them, you know, just because Kalasinac isn't great, I think we can't rush Tierney. I think... I'm sure his fitness is a factor in those decisions. Mm. So, look, disappointing day, um, particularly as um, other results over the weekend kind of went our way to an extent uh, in that Chelsea were beaten and mm. had we won, we'd have been five points off the top four rather than the seven that we sit at this moment in time. So mm. uh, there's a game on Thursday, of course, a game against Brighton um, in which we, you know, goes without saying, we really badly need three points. But there are some lessons to be learned from uh, the team selection yesterday and the way that the team was managed during the game. So hopefully, hopefully we get those. Anything else before we go into part two, take a break and what have you? No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, yeah, there are lessons to be learned, but Freddie Jumberg's first Premier League 
game in charge of her team. So uh, I suppose that doesn't come as any great surprise. And I, and look, even though there were problems, I don't know about you, but I just felt, I still felt a, a palpable sense of relief. And I think at least we're talking about different things. You know, there's a, a degree of satisfaction in that. Yes, I agree. I agree. You know, we had to we had to start again. Where exactly we're going to go remains to be seen, and no doubt that's something we'll talk about quite a lot over the coming days and weeks and what have you. But you know, we had to start again, and you know, uh, some of the some of the stuff I've seen, you know, the reaction uh, to it as if Freddie was like a miracle worker, like he was going to go in and you know turn all the loaves and fishes into you know feed the masses and what have you. Just it was. Well, I think we underestimate the scale of the problems at this football club, and that's something we're definitely going to get into in the second half. Yeah, I said on Twitter, Uno Emery going is is the start of fixing our problems, not the end. Mm. And I think this game really made that clear. Mm. All right, we will take a break. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. You can sign up if you like, patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. Right. Let's start here. I just before we delve into things, we might as well lighten the mood a little bit because I, I suspect there are going to be some heavy conversations in the mm. second part of the show because there's so much going on and so many things that we all want to get on top of and understand and what have you. But Tom Servo Jones and Jayasaurus Rex bring up comments by Paul Scholes. Did you see these? No, tell me. Paul Scholes has criticised Freddie Jumberg for not wearing a suit for Arsenal's clash with Norwich on Sunday. He said, you'd think he'd be out in a suit to show a bit of proudness that he took the job. To me, that's a great start. Shirt and tie to show some discipline. I don't think he'll be the right man. <laughs> Christ. What the... Wow. What, yeah, go on. I, you Please fire ahead with this. I mean, listen, you're speaking to a man who loves a tracksuit. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> I wore a tracksuit to the BAFTAs, for God's sake. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, that's just absurd. I, I honestly think... I, do you know what? I, 
Freddie is has been a a model in his life. He's you know been in magazines and catwalks and all sorts. He doesn't need to dress up to look good on the touchline. And if anything, I actually quite like the tracksuit. That suggests to me a guy who's like, I'm here. I'm a coach. I want to be out on the training pitch. I, listen, there's something to be said for for looking sharp, but. I just don't care at all. Freddie, he can't help but look good, whatever he wears. Yeah, I mean, it's just the idea that wearing a suit is a prerequisite uh, for the job <laughs> is just absurd. It's ridiculous. It's so stupid. And, you know, I don't think that Paul Scholes is the smartest man in the world, but I didn't think he was quite this thick. I mean, look at Pep Guardiola. He wears that fucking... True. He wears... Polo neck thing. That polo, yeah, polo neck, fine. But that kind of jacket hoodie type thing Oh yeah, which yeah. probably cost two thousand pounds somewhere. But you know, if I found you sleeping under a bridge with your J Train tracksuit bottoms on and that on top, I go, oh poor James, <laughs> he's really yeah. hit the hard times. And if you'd been in London last night, that's what you would have seen <laughs> <laughs> about three a.m. But uh, yeah, I mean, Paul Scholes, uh, his punditry is not is not brilliant. I have to mm. say, and this must be a new low for him. Mm. Um, well, look, let's move on from Paul's goals. And let me okay. ask you this one, which comes from uh, Keelan, who's on the Discord, the Arse Blog Discord. And he says, if Aubameyang wasn't here, what would Arsenal fans think of Lacazette's output? No goals away to non-relegated sides in two and a half seasons. Is that, a th- is that real? Barely better stats than Giroud. I feel like he lives off his relationship with Aubameyang. The knives are out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like is that? Yeah, I. So, well, I know you have quite strong feelings on this. So, actually, I think you should go first. What's I, your take on it? My take is that away from home, we don't get anything close to the requisite output from Lacazette to continue persisting with him and to playing Aubameyang out wide. At home. Lacazette has scored. Let me get it uh, up here with thanks to our our friend Orbino at Opta. Thirty one goals in uh, thirty one goals in fifty one games at home. Very good. Good. Very good. Nine goals in forty six appearances away from home. Not good. Not good. Now, for comparison, and uh, I don't know the answers, but does he have Aubameyang's numbers home and away? Actually, he doesn't. I didn't ask because those. It- the only thing I would um, counter is to say, we are so bad away. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, true, I guess. But, yeah, it's an interesting one. So so you would go without Lacazette away from home? Yes. I would play Aubameyang up front and I would put wide players either side of him. So... Pepe on the right, Martinelli on the left, who I'd be very keen to to see get some minutes in the Premier League because I just think the type of player that he is, the the bravery, the willingness to run at people, what, he's shown us in the Europa League that he's a player. Mm. We can see he's a player. Um, and I know it's different in the Premier League. I, I realise that. I'm, I'm not blind to the fact that, that some of the Europa League opposition are not quite at the same level uh, as, as Premier League. But, you know, when you're trying to change the dynamic of a team and when you're trying to get something more out of the team from an, a, an attacking point of view, an offensive point of view, I just look at the squad and I think, how are we going to do that? How are we going to create chances? How are we going to make the opposition 
deal with the same things that we have to deal with week in, week out, which is, uh, you know, a quick transition. And all of a sudden, when we're running back towards our own goal, we're, we're in panic mode. We're in panic stations. So I would like to see that. I think uh, it would provide us also with an option from the bench, should we need it, which we often do, which is a, a an experienced striker who could come on and make a bit of a difference. But I just think at this moment in time, we're not getting enough from Lacazette. We're not getting enough from that relationship between Lacazette and Aubameyang to make it worth sticking with. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, it's an either or for me. And uh, the, the obvious the obvious uh, candidate to start up front is, is Aubameyang because he scores our goals. He absolutely does. I mean, I would say he scores them wherever he plays is the only thing. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so my thing with Lacazette is, and I don't know if it's um, uh, just, I don't know if I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that I feel like he's one of those players you kind of don't miss him until he's not there because structurally he adds something. I mean, Aubameyang is a brilliant goal scorer, but he doesn't he doesn't offer as much all-round, for me, as Lacazette does. And, you know, I think we played at Sheffield United without Lacazette, with Aubameyang up top. And I remember feeling a bit like, oh, it's just sort of difficult to get anything to stick. Mm. Um, I, I suppose it's horses for courses. There'll be games which suit one and that don't suit the other. I have been thinking this weekend about it and I know we're really glad that we've got Aubameyang and that we've got Lacazette, but kind of in the vein of the thing of like when they bought Pepe, did they know where he'd play? you do look at Aubameyang and Lacazette and go, well, wh- was that a plan? Was there a plan there? And, and it, it it doesn't really feel like it, necessarily. No, I mean, it's been a constant subject of discussion, constant questions about it for the podcast, and, you know, mm-hmm. you see it being discussed all the time. You know, on, on my, my Twitter timeline, is like, how do you get Aubameyang and Lacazette into the same team and get the best out of both of them? And I'm not sure that you can. You know, I don't think you well, can if, get if the you, best out of both of them. If you want to play both centrally in, in a two, it really limits what you do behind that. I think it's part of the reason we ended up going to the back three last season and maybe again this season because it's one of the most obvious mm. ways to get two central strikers on the field. I think Aubameyang, you know, bless him in a way. I mean, he worked really hard on the wing yesterday and I know that's not what you want to see him doing his work but he does try manfully and sort of get back even though it's not his his natural game Yeah, um, it is tricky because they're in our best you know if you were saying who are the best five Arsenal players probably people would name them both Yeah, but getting them both into the side is uh, not straightforward let me ask you this do you think that the issue is complicated by the fact that as a team we have so few players who can actually score goals because <laughs> um, you know yeah. we, we don't have um, we don't have midfielders who are goal scorers. Ginduzi doesn't score goals. Torreira occasionally scores goals. Joe Willock, you know, is is more in that mold, but is still very much in the infancy of his career, and he's he's quite inexperienced still. Yeah, so. We we lack goals from midfield. Xhaka is not a goal scorer. Our fullbacks not really a goal scorer. No, our fullbacks don't score goals. We've lost some goals from the centre of our defence because Koscielny was always good for five or six a season. 
And in fairness, Mustafi's not bad. I mean, no, that's true. Yeah, on that front. But you know, I think you're right. And actually, I think Saka and Willock, I think, are both players who will score goals. But we've seen this so many times with young players. You know, it doesn't always come straight away, and it's sometimes in their early twenties that that really starts to come out at, at first team level. Mm. So yeah, I think we are incredible. We have been guilty a bit. I mean, I think our Europa League campaign last season, we all talk about that Valencia game, what a great game it was. It wasn't that great behind the front two, but we just sort of let them do their thing. Um, there was this period at the second half of last season where it was sort of like, well, as long as we get Aubameyang and Lacazette on the pitch, they'll yeah. dig us out. Yeah. Um, but if you want to build a team that has a coherent structure and a plan then I, I think it becomes more difficult. I mean, I, I, you know, I do think the way we saw them yesterday, if you want to get both on the field, Lacazette Central or Bemiang wide is probably the way to do it in, in, a, in a sort of good team structure. But yeah, I appreciate that comes with its problems. And when you say we haven't got enough goal scorers on the pitch, I mean, of course, people will po- point to Pepe um, yeah. as someone who was bought to replace that, uh, fix that problem. But yeah, it is an issue, and I, yeah, I, I, I'll be really intrigued to see what happens. I mean, Lacazette does not look a happy bunny to me. Um, He's not in good form, that's for sure. Yes, and I think his frustration is palpable. I mean, I mentioned the reaction to the penalty. Someone uh, asked a question. J J D on Twitter said, "Did you or James notice midway through the first half when the ball fell perfectly to Shaka and he?" Screwed his pass to Lacazette. Yeah. The reaction between the two was awkward, to say the least. Uh, I mean, Lacazette, he has that uh, Thierry Henry prickliness, doesn't mm. he, in his character? Yeah, I don't mind somebody being demanding, though, because it was a really yeah. bad pass from Shaka. You know, having... Um, I think Norwich gave the ball away. He stole it high. It was yeah, really yeah, unusual, yeah. and then he... Yeah, he's yeah. completely blew you the know, So I don't... I don't I, yeah, I've got no issue with, with Lacazette being demanding there. Um you know, I think players mm. players should be. Um, but yeah, look, I, yeah, you're right. You're yeah. right. I think I think he yeah he he looks a bit sulky at times. But I, I just mean in terms of like, you know, there are contract talks to be had with mm. both these players. And if you ask me which one I thought was more inclined to go, uh, I would say it would be Lacazette. Yeah. Um, mm. But well, uh, in fact. Let's do this question now. Um, okay. Let me find it. Where is it? Uh, it's from M. Tula on the Discord. And they ask, how do you think Freddie should approach his lineup for the Brighton game? Oh, uh, God. I think we have to... I think we really have to attack <laughs> Brighton. Yeah. Genuinely. Like, at this point... You're looking at the defenders that we have. You're looking at the. You're looking at the the, the individual and collective quality, the lack of organisation back there. You know, if you were to, like, it must be heartbreaking to think which of these hapless central defenders am I going to pick? It's like not not what's my best defence. It's like what is my least worst defence, mm. and that's a problem for for Freddie and it's a problem for for any coach um, I, I think he's got to get if, if Bellerin is back and, and Tierney is fit get the two of them in the team I would play Holding if he was fit 
Is he fit? I don't know. It's a bit weird. There was a suggestion yesterday that he travelled with the the squad, but isn't quite a hundred percent and well, not the ready same to thing be. Happened in Frankfurt, didn't it? He travelled, but it wasn't yeah. involved. But just when he was coming back, so he's in the training picks and and everything else. Yeah, you know, maybe there's something going on physically that you know we don't know about because of the reaction to his injury. Um, when is the last time he played? It feels like a feels like a age ago. while ago, actually. So let me just look it up here. So do you? Can you throw him back in? Um, I'm not. Sure, I'm not sure I would, to be honest. Yeah. So then it becomes a choice of like, well, what the fuck do you do? Like if Bellerin is back, I'd nearly be inclined to give Chambers a go at centre half. I know he hasn't been brilliant at right back. But do I want to see Mustafi again? No. Do I want to see Socrates again? No. I don't want to see Louise again either, really. But if we've got to pick one of those three. I don't know that yeah, we you know. I think you pick Louise and you hope you dominate the ball, basically. I mean, mm. I think that's what the decision is. I would go Chambers, a centre-back. I'm not sure it's the long-term solution. No, but I don't think so. He, he's good on the ball. Mm. Um... And, you know, he won't be leaving his pocket every f- five minutes like he is at right back. So, you know, hopefully he'll, he'll be a bit more comfortable there. Yeah. Uh, that's what I would go. Chambers, Louise, if Bellerin's fit. I, I keep Leno in goal, actually. You would, yeah. Might surprise something. Yeah, yeah I'll keep good, him. Yeah. Yeah, good idea. Uh, the, <laughs> the Leicester game, 2-0, was the one uh, the last time Holding played. Played 77 minutes in that. In a back three, didn't he? Mm. Back three on the left hand side, and he had a he had a tough game actually. Was it a back recall. three? It was, yeah, it was. Yeah, he, he wasn't good on the ball, unusually for him. Uh, yeah. yeah so I mean, that. beyond that, um, what can we what can we say about the lineup? I would. So, would you pick one striker or, or two? I think I would play Shaka and Torreira in midfield. I'd play Ozil. I'd play Aubameyang up front. I think, you know, I mean, look, it's all dependent on what they're seeing on the training ground and whether there's this big issue, but I'd like to see Pepe on the right and I'd like to see Martinelli on the left. And I think that gives us quite a nice balance at home. Mm in a game that we're probably going to dominate possession in. And it gives us options from the bench as well. If we need them, we'd have another striker to bring on, which we don't have if we start um, Lacazette and Aubameyang together. So that's the way I would do it. But obviously it remains to be seen what, what Freddie will do. It's interesting. I mean, something that occurs to me about the Lacazette thing is I think you need Lacazette more when you haven't got Meza Ozil because Ozil especially if you play centrally as a kind of number 10 he does bring a bit of structure to the attack um, and it, I think you can you can have a Bermier still have someone who can hold the ball carry the ball act as a kind of centrifugal point um, I think when you don't have Ozil it's when you need Lacazette more in some way so I like the sound of that team a lot I have to be honest I, I think it's time to give Martinelli a go in the Premier League. Even in his two minutes or whatever it was at Norwich, I just love the way he hairs after the ball. Uh, yeah, I think let's let's 
Let's give me a game. I'd really like to see that. Mm, okay, here's uh, here's one from Emmanuel Ndiakwere, I think. It's a tough one. Cool. Um, he's at, at Emmanuel Ndiak W4 on Twitter. He says, two disturbing questions that Freddie must mm. answer. <laughs> one, okay. why does every counterattack lead to panic and disarray at the back and often results in a goal? Two, mm. What causes the constant second-half collapse, especially towards the end of the match? Right answers could lead to improved performances. So no pressure on you here, James. But our entire second half against Brighton and the rest of the season is dependent on your answer and somebody telling Freddie. Right. The first part was the counterattack issue, right? Yep. I think we've been over that. I do just think that we... Uh, well, we overcommit and get ahead of the ball for a team that don't have uh, the quality one-to-one defenders to withstand counterattacks. Mm. Um, the other point about us was it about us being bad at the end of halves? No. Why do we collapse in the second half, ah. and uh, especially towards the end of the match? So why does the momentum mm. of games go against us so much in the second period? And our results depend on me getting this right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> is it because they're all thinking about, oh, we get to go home soon, have a nice <laughs> dinner. And, <laughs> and they're like, maybe they all are thinking about what they're going to have for dinner. And the problem is... They have such nice dinners that it's distract. Their dinner is distracting them. Maybe. Do you think it might be perhaps a fitness issue? I think it's the dinner thing, and <laughs> I'm prepared to die on that hill. I will go to the grave believing it's the dinner thing. Anyway, time for your theory. I think it might be a, a fitness thing. But did you hear me say about the dinner? I heard what you the, said about the dinner. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm not okay. sure that the players are quite as dinner obsessed but as if, you might think. What if think. they've got like a delicious shepherd's pie as their dinner? And uh, do you know what I mean? 61st minute, tummy's rumbling. Oh, a bit hungry. Oh, the shepherd's pie will be going in the oven soon. And then before they know it, there's been a goal. And mm. they're like, oh, damn. But at least they, and they, they don't even care because they know that later they've got the pie to have. Hey, look... It's, it's hard worth... to disprove. It's difficult to disprove, isn't it? Yeah, I think we need it's a worth deep, exploring a deep dive on this. We'll do an, a, yeah. an entire podcast <laughs> on this one. New for the Athletic, yeah. a deep dive <laughs> exclusive about the, what pies Callum Chambers has for dinner. The inside story of how Arsenal players <laughs> make their pies. It's yeah. seven a.m. in the morning. Callum Chambers yeah. gets up, peels some carrots, looks out the window wistfully, thinking about the game today against Norwich, but more thinking about when can he have this delicious mashed potato encrusted with cheese on top, shepherd's pie. Beautiful. I could speak to Pybury Corner, you know, get yeah. some insight from them. Speak to a couple of chefs. I, I, I'll speak to my commissioning editor today. Awesome. But you've got this wild theory. That it's a fitness issue. I think it could be a fitness issue combined with with the deep psychological scars that I mentioned earlier. That that we're a team, uh, and this is not just um, relevant to now. I think it's been a problem that we've had for a little while. That when something goes wrong, 
we don't we don't have the coping mechanisms that you would expect top level footballers and sports people to have. I think we we start by fearing and visualizing the absolute worst that could happen in every single occasion. Like I don't think there's a confidence that when the tide turns in a game that we can we can stem it and turn it back around the other way. When is the last time that you have seen like maybe the Villa game this season is the only yeah. time in recent memory that I can think of where everything was going against us and somehow we managed to turn it around and, and get a result. We're a team that, uh, I'd, I'd love to know the stats on this actually, uh, how many times have we scored first and gone on to lose a game and drop points? It mm. feels like that's a, you know, even scoring first, the opposition don't give a fuck. They're not scared because they know they can turn it around because this is Arsenal. So I think there are some psychological um, issues that that we need to to work on. I know the club has a psychologist. Yeah. He was the guy who suggested that the players vote for captain. Mm. So I'd say throw that guy out of a fucking window for a start. <laughs> And maybe work on um, on something else. I think it's I think it's almost a self fulfilling prophecy at this point that when things go wrong we get panicked. When we get panicked we make bad bad decisions. We don't do what we should do. But I also think we're just not very good at doing the basics at times, which is just organization, players getting back into position, players covering runs players, you know, just doing the basics of what a footballer should do in their appropriate positions. And, you know, the Premier League is a merciless place when you're found wanting in situations like that. So we we get exposed because teams are full of good players who can hurt you. Mm. And the ovens are full (laughs) of these delicious pies as well. Yeah. So if we could just Yeah, I'm sorry I fucking wasted all of your time with that crackpot theory that I have. If if we can just align those two things together, then maybe you know, we can deal with both both ends of this problem. Right. Um let's have a question from uh Josh Robinson 87 on Twitter. Thanks Josh. And this there was a, a glaring omission from your team to face Brighton. Was there? And Josh says in caps it's time to talk Genduzi. Can you tell me what he does that is productive? I've wanted him dropped for ages. He slows play down, always plays safe. He's neither defensive or attacking. Shaka is far better. And for me, needs to play alongside Torreira. Um, I would take issue with some of that because I do think that um, Genduzi is more naturally predisposed to making an impact in the opposition half. Like, I think about the the Villa game that I mentioned. How did we get that penalty? It was Genduzi picking up the ball, running into uh, the opposition box and getting fouled and, and winning a penalty. I understand some of the concerns about him. I think, um, you know, and I've said this before, I think perhaps the hype train picked up too much speed too quickly with Genduzi. Mm. Um He's a good young player, but we've seen good young players come in, do well, hit a wall, and then just fall off the map. So, you know, 
the idea that he was going to be our next superstar or whatever always felt a little bit premature to me and I'm not saying he can't be a really good player I think there's there's obviously talent there he's been brought into the French squad but you know it's it's a lot to ask of a 20 year old or however old he is now um, you know to kind of carry the Arsenal midfield and uh, I think we're looking sometimes for uh, individual solutions to collective problems so, yeah. you know, we, we go, why isn't our midfield good? Well, Xhaka's not good enough. Torreira's too small. Ganduzi's too slow. Willock's too inexperienced. All of those things can be true. But, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I think he's, um, like a lot of players in this team, struggling for form because it is a team bereft of confidence and belief and, and everything else. Um, so drop him by all means. But who else is there in the meantime? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think Shaka's fascinating because... Almost to a man, Arsenal fans wanted Shaka out of the team. And I actually think when he came out, I know there are other factors, but I think we got worse. Uh, and that is quite extraordinary, but I think we managed it. And I would I would be picking Shaka now um, for all his flaws. I, I would be picking him. Mm, uh, yeah, look, I don't know that we have... Much else. That's the thing. But I, I have to say, I would also be picking Torreira. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, my thing with Ganduzi is um, I think he's a fantastic prospect. I think there's no doubt at all about that. And at the start of this season, he was in outstanding form. Um, he is never going to be, in my opinion, a goal scorer. He doesn't really run beyond the striker. So I always feel more comfortable with our midfield when there's someone like someone like Joe Willock. And I say Joe Willock because he is the only real midfielder of that type that we have kind of next to him or alongside him or ahead of him. Someone who actually can sort of penetrate properly in a final third. Because I know what you're saying about Ganduzi and he's got a couple of assists and stuff this season, but I'm, I, I'm not sure he's a final third player for me. Um I almost feel like he's best in a three. You know, I feel like he's you've got the same yeah. David Luiz problem. He's best in a three. He's like a connector. Um, yeah, I, I, Shaka and Torreira, I mean, that was what it was supposed to be, wasn't it? When we bought Torreira, I think there was sort of a hope that maybe that could be a bit of a partnership. And I think it showed a little bit of promise last season. Um, so I, I would give that a go. I just think there's no harm in bringing Genduzzi out for a game. He's played every game so far in the yeah. Premier League he's played a lot of minutes and maybe a bit of rotation wouldn't be the worst thing I mean he is a fantastic prospect but I think you're right I think we assess him uh, kind of on the absence of other options to an extent I mean he has been our best player but in our worst season in 30 years you know in the midfield anyway he's been our best midfielder but yeah. it's been pretty diabolical so mm. another small uh, thing for Freddie to, to sort out <laughs> Just, just another small well, thing. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I've got a question here that I'm going to do, which is Ooh, from... are you now? Yeah, if you don't mind. Because <laughs> it, it's... Do you know what? Because it's sort of linked vaguely to what you just said. All right. It's from Rothko84 on the Discord. I assume it's the painter. Um, what we saw yesterday suggested this team has problems uh, that coaching alone can't fix... Does that change the calculation on the kind of manager we go for? 
A manager like Ancelotti is unlikely to achieve in a two-year period without significant investment in the squad, something that the Cronkies probably won't do. Mm. A lot in there, actually. There is. I have to say Mm. that I don't think any manager that we hire will be a success without significant investment in key areas of this team. I mean, wasn't that sort of the big uh, takeout from the Norwich game is that we've all kind of put a bit of a hiatus recently on the squad because of the issues with the coaching and the managing. Mm. But yesterday, you couldn't help but look at it. And I don't think it's because we're just, we like Freddie and we're giving him too much credit. I think it's just because, you know, we've kind of, the scales have fallen from our eyes a bit on that front. And some of the problems of the squad have been laid bare slightly. Yeah, I guess so. I uh, I do stand by the assertion that there is more potential to this group of players than we're seeing. But, you know, the the centre of our defence is uh, is just a, a shambles for a club the size of Arsenal to be to be dealing with the the kind of characters that we have in there I think is is really poor um, whatever it cost to uh, sign William Saliba you know we should have just paid them some more money uh, <laughs> to bring him in this season, and clearly there was I mean, a, even then he's eighteen. Yeah, you know, I know, so I know, I know. But that's ask. well, exactly. But that that sort of illustrates the the issue that we have that we're looking at an eighteen year old playing in Liga uh, as the potential savior. Um, it says a lot about the players that we have. I think is mm-hmm. is the the way to look at it. Um, I I don't quite know what this search is going to be about. Um, let me just see. I think there was a, a great tweet from, could have been, I think it was Rory Smith. It was Rory Smith. Was it Rory yeah. Smith? Let me see here if I can find it because I did give it a... While you look for that, I'll just... Give it a uh, like. Yeah, here it is. That, oh, go on. Oh, you've got go on. It. I was going to say that James Ollie has uh, published a story as we've been talking, saying, just saying that Freddie is a serious candidate. Right. Um, yeah, that would make... Sense. But I think we sort of knew that, I think. Yeah. Um, Rory Smith, Arsenal having a list of a dozen candidates to replace Emery isn't a sign of thoroughness. It's a sign that the people running the show don't know what they want. They might get a brilliant manager who's, who turns it all around, but it's not a great start. And I think that's a very, very um, smart point to make. It is. It is. And they should know. The only thing I can say is I am not sure myself what is the right thing for Arsenal. It it is uh, tricky, I think. It is, yeah, because you get some people say we need an experienced manager to, you know, steady the ship and get us back on track. Mm. We tried that with Emery, though. Some people will say, we need to be left field, we need to be brave, we need to bring in someone young and vibrant and, you know, uh, like Arteta or whatever it might be. Um, there's other people saying, well, you go for Pochettino because, you know, he's the he's the outstanding candidate available at this moment in time. I just, you know, I, I, I come back to the whole Spurs baggage thing. I do think that would become an issue. Um, 
you know, so it, it, it is a tricky one. It is a tricky mm. one. But um, I sort of have a follow-on question here, and we need Go to on. talk a little bit about, um, you know, what happened uh, over the weekend as well. Um, this comes from Hamza.ElmAbdi, who's at ElmAbdi on Twitter. And he says, Raul and Edu seemed pre-frustrated yesterday when the camera showed them Raul was swearing. I think they're as upset as the fans and that they'll eventually bring in a top manager to turn the ship around. Do you agree? And sort of following on from that a bit is the visit of Josh Kroenke to to the training ground where he, you know, gave a, yeah. a no doubt a rousing speech like sure. like Al Pacino in any given Sunday to the troops. <laughs> It, it, well, it, yeah, it stirred them enough to get a 2-2 at Norwich, so it must have been pretty inspirational stuff. Yeah. Um, listen, I'm being facetious. I, I actually think that Josh's interview he did with Arsenal.com was pretty good. Uh, and I, I, I'm conscious that I'm on the owner's back a fair bit and that one of the things that, you know, I think we collectively as fans demand for them is better communication and I I think I do want to try and give some credit where it's due and I, I think on that front they are certainly improving um, and Josh as much as I, my thing is you know he's very detached he's very detached he has been at a lot of home games this season quite a good few yeah uh, so so you know on that front uh, I think it's a positive thing we, I think a, an owner who is interested and invested is almost certainly going to be better for us than one who like Stan was just never really present. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair because we have demanded more from uh, more engagement from KSE and it has arrived in the shape of, mm-hmm. of Josh Kroenke, better communication. He's more visible. You know, he's mm-hmm. there on the ground, which, you know, certainly was never the case with Stan. He just, you know, definitely didn't show up. So, you know, there's there's something positive to take from the fact that, you know, he's there, he's talking to people, he's talking to the fans, uh, you know, via the official channels, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a step forward. And I'm not going to be critical of, of him or KSE for that at all. What I would say, though, is that um, under KSE, our, our, our steady decline into what appears to be a struggling mid-table side mm-hmm. makes it difficult for me to be overly cheery about the fact that they're Absolutely. here, right? So yeah. I think we have to look at it in, in that context, too. Well done for doing you know, what you should have done a long time ago, because this idea that this was, you know, Kroenke has had, you know, essentially full control of the football club, not just since last year when they took 100% control when they bought out Usmanov, but for years and years and years, they've been the one calling the shots completely, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, we, we, yeah, it's long overdue, but it's still very worrying that this is a club which is, um, you know, going through a, a very, very difficult time. Um, and it's up to them to put a stop to it. So, yeah, look, the spotlight's on now. I suppose in, in one way you would say that by by being there and being more visible, there is a, a measure of 
accountability or responsibility, would you say, in that, you know, he's making it clear that the book kind of stops with him. As the owner and as the visible face of the owner, we now know where that particular book stops and, and, yeah. and who, who is taking charge. He's putting his head above the parapet, certainly. He's making himself a potential target. You know, things continue to not pan out well. Um, yes, I think you're right. I mean, it's great. The words were great. But as we've said many times, actions do speak louder than words. And the club have a massive job on their hands to get this appointment right. Because as I just said, I mean, it, uh, it's not... I don't think it's easy to answer who's right for Arsenal. Watching the game yesterday, like last week or whenever it was, Friday, we spoke and Emery had gone. And we were super excited about Freddie and with good justification and I continue to be really excited about watching Arsenal under Freddie Eumberg but watching the Norwich game uh, and this is not a, a 180 swing and it's not like people who I saw literally tweeting hashtag Freddie out some of them after the game yesterday <laughs> uh, I did look at it and think this is a big job and it might be just very early for Freddie to, to take this job on in full time. I mean, of course, we'll see how it pans out and results will mm. influence things. But I just looking at it and suddenly looking at the squad with fresh eyes and looking at the scale of the work that needs to be done tactically to introduce some kind of tactical rigour to this team. I thought, hmm, maybe we need someone with a bit more assurance, a bit more of a safe pair of hands um hmm. but i don't know that and, and you know it's it's genuinely very difficult to say i mean do you are you sort of floating do you have a, a feeling clearly sort of evolving in one direction towards the candidate or no i mean not yet it's too early it's too early to know isn't it um i just have concerns about the people choosing that candidate um, that I'm finding quite quite hard to shake. I mean, this is now 100% spotlight turned on, okay, Josh, we can talk about, but Raul Senyehi as, the, you know, the head of football. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Nick Ames in The Guardian wrote a good piece about this, uh, which you can find obviously on the, on the Guardian website, you know, about the fact that in the space of 12, 18 months, he is the guy who has taken control of football matters at this football club. And, you know, Sven is gone. Gazidis is gone. Um, he's put together this football executive committee with a number of people asking, like, you know, why is why is Vinay involved in the selection process for the new manager? You know, he's the, the managing director. He's involved in the business side of the club. And obviously... You know, these two guys are working together, Raul and Vinay, but, you know, people are, I think, entitled to wonder what expertise does he bring to that process? Um, Edu arrived when? In the summer? What do Edu do? What do Edu do? It's a really good question because so far we don't have a fucking clue. And I want Edu to be good I like Edu. I always liked him as a player. I want the guy in that role to be good at his job because it's important for Arsenal Football Club. But as yet, we don't have a clue whether he is good or not, whether he's allowed to be good or not. 
We do know. We do know what Edu do. We do right know. now. We do know what Edu do. Not one clue what Edu do. Exactly. And fucking Hoss family. Until we do do, until we do do know what Edu do, then how can we be expected to do anything? It's true. But like Hoss family is the director. What's he director of? Director of football operations. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) No, I mean, look, and he is a big part of the process. Oh, my battery's about to run out. I've got to ch- plug the computer in. You talk for 20 seconds. I will, I, I will talk for 20 seconds. I, I believe, ladies and gentlemen, I could be quite wrong here, that James Hangover is one of those where you're still perhaps a little bit pissed from the night before. You know, when you wake up and you're like, oh, I actually don't feel that bad. Oh, do I feel bad? And then you sort of get carried away with yourself. Uh, I'm back. You're back. Good. Yeah. Feeling okay? Um, yeah. Listen, plugged in. Good to go. Um Oh, drop something. It's, Is that your BAFTA? Uh, it's landed on my foot, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. What did you make of uh, Brendy bringing up his... Uh, told you. ...release clause? I told yeah. you. Brendan Rogers on Sky saying, I got a release clause. Do you want me to, uh, you know, throw my children off a cliff? I'll do it. I will do it. See my dog? I'll run that dog over for a big job. I will. Um, I don't think I don't think Rogers is a possibility. To be honest, I don't think it's. I just don't think we'd pay for it. To a, be honest, a I don't think we pay for it. B, like if you're Brandon Rogers and you've got that, let's be honest here. There is an element of you know the great I am I am with Brandon Rogers. You know, mm. um, he thinks very highly of himself and at this moment in time considering what he's doing with Leicester I think he's entitled to think well of the job that he's doing there but would you swap the potential um, of I guess you know it is a success to get Leicester into the Champions League would you swap that achievement to come in and work with Socrates, Mustafi and Louise I don't know that you would yeah, but I just, I think you were right what you said. I think a man with Brendan Rodgers' ego, the lure of the big six is always going to be strong to him. But, yeah, I agree it's probably moot because I just don't think we'll pay what it would cost. Mm. I don't think so either. I think that there was some leaks. Uh, was it David Ornstein wrote in The Athletic today about yeah. how um, they would be reluctant to pay what it might take to get a manager who's currently in situ. Um, so that might that might well have a, a big impact. But look, you know, as much as the Emery appointment was, I'm not going to say it was a free hit, but there was always a chance that, you know, when you replace a manager like Wenger, mm, it, it doesn't mm. go well. And everybody could understand why it wouldn't necessarily go well. This time, given where we are, given what's at stake... Given the trajectory that this club is on, this is a huge appointment for the club to make, for Josh Kroenke to oversee, for Raul Senyehi to basically um, decide on with his football mates. Football friends. Um, You know, he's got to get it right. He's got to get it right because here's what happens if it goes wrong next time. The manager should lose his job. If, he, if it doesn't work, 
but so should Raul Senyehi. Mm. That's what's at stake. Because unless we get somebody to turn things around, we're going to keep going in the wrong direction. So it's a big, big appointment. And they've really, really got to... They've really got to get somebody convincing in. Jobs are at stake. Their own jobs are at stake as well. So, I mean, it's not going to bother Josh Kroenke. He's not going to fire himself. He's still going to own the club. But if he really is actually ambitious about Arsenal and the and the way that he talks about the club and, and wanting it to do things, if he's really ambitious and his executives, the ones that he's placed in charge, continue to let him down and let the club down with their appointments and the way they run the football side of this club, then they need to go too. Not just the head coach. Get rid of all those fuckers. Well, and look, they only let uh, Ivan Gazida stay for 10 years. So... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. And on that cheery note, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) I think we'll put an end to this uh, particular episode of the Arscast Extra. Uh, As always, um, thank you very much indeed for being with us. Remember, do give us a review on iTunes. If Oh, iTunes doesn't exist anymore. Apparently. No, if you've got the new Mac OS, it's the the Apple Podcasts app. So give us a review on the Apple Podcasts app or whatever podcast app you use. Tell your friends, share the podcast. Thanks a million for being here. We'll talk to you on Friday following Mm -hmm. the Brighton game in which surely, surely we're going to finally win, right? Surely. Surely. As long as those players stay off those pies... We'll be fine. All right. Keep your minds off the pies and your eyes on the prize, Arsenal players. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.